for me, it's always giving your best and mm-hmm. nothing, don't do the bare minimum, especially as a woman and as a young person. So throughout my career, it's been pretty straightforward, but of course, there's this issue about entrenched patriarchy, um, microaggressions around ageism, because most of the time when I enter rooms, I'm the only female and I'm the youngest. So it's something <laughs> I've learned to deal with. And one of the most, one of the ways that worked for me is giving 100% at every point in time and working as a team, being honest and um, integrity goes a long way. And integrity is not limited to just finances. It's even how we account for your time at work. Happy Wednesday and welcome to the Brentus Foundation podcast. This is the platform where we throw light on some of the African continent's biggest and most pressing issues and leverage best practice not just on what to do, but how to do it. I'm your host, Marino Mwokolo, and it's a pleasure to be here with you today. On today's episode, we are bringing to you an insightful chat on financing Africa's growth, encouraging innovation, and creating jobs for Africa's burgeoning population. Joining us for this conversation is Dr. Yakima Manti-Jones. She is the Director of Research and Delivery Division at the Ministry of Finance in Sierra Leone. Dr. Manti Jones is also an Amuje Fellow at the Ellen Johnson Sirleaf Presidential Center for Women and Development. Without further ado, let's get into today's conversation. So, Yakima, thank you so, so much for joining me today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. And thank you for having me. Yeah, pleasure is all mine. Uh, so before we get started, I know we sort of mentioned that we're going to talk about like, you know, rethinking sort of uh, financing models and stuff. But I wanted to play a quick game with you. Um, I think it's just a chance to warm us up as well as, you know, familiarize ourselves and the audience with who you are. So are you ready? Yes. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> what was the first job on your CV or resume? Um, that was a budget analyst at the oh. Ministry of Finance. Yes, because oh. um, as soon as I finished my final exams at the university in Sierra Leone Fabric College, then I got the offer to start interning and then I started work at the Budget Bureau, Ministry of Finance, and then did some another six months in the Economic Policy and Research Unit. So the Ministry of Finance budget analyst yeah. <laughs> my that's first amazing. job. You knew from the start. Some of us have just been wondering about here. That's amazing. How many languages do you speak? Um, Just English and Creole. That's the mm-hmm. local language in Sierra Leone. That's widely spoken. Um, unfortunately, I can't speak my mother's tongue. I'm Franco. <laughs> so I, I say yeah, so people that. say I'm Franco by accident of geography. <laughs> Uh, do you have any hobbies or skills that people don't know about? So I think everyone that's close to me knows that I love cooking and dancing. So mm. maybe in my public life, people don't know that, but I do love cooking and dancing. Oh, that's amazing. I wish I could do well in cooking. It's fine, but dancing, it just doesn't quite work out for me. Hey, It just, it just it doesn't. So I know people that it works out for it needed to be dancing because I can't sing. My voice is really horrible. <laughs> you had to win somewhere. <laughs> yes. So how would you describe your average work day? Is there anything like an average work day? 
Well, for me, it depends on the day, actually. So, mm. yes, so let's uh, regular Monday. So start with breakfast, kid, drop off kids at school, then come to the office, mm. like have team check-in, then set priorities for the week, check-in with the bosses on what the priorities are. Then yeah. during it, I'll spend that either writing research or reviewing documents, data analysis, or coordinating and facilitating work. And sometimes I do some like capacity building with the team. And mm. then after work um, in the car, that's when I do my teaching notes and reading dissertations, because I also lecture at the university. And oh, then wow. get home, yes, do an hour's study time with the girls. I have two daughters, gold and silver, and then dinner and then bed. But then if it's a Thursday and a Friday evening, I'll need to go lecture. And then if it's a Saturday, I need to like look at the company files because that I run a company with my husband. So I need to like review mm -hmm. the files. And then if it's like the last Friday of the month, I also check in with my um, coordinator of, of my foundation. So it actually depends it on really which day of the week. Yeah. And sometimes at work, there are just things that come up so that we need to firefight. So I need to like put in more effort and drop a lot of those other things. But yeah. then I with juggling all of this, I'm thankful for WhatsApp. So communication with all the different players yeah. <laughs> goes no, under at all times, yeah. That's, so the long and short of it is you have 48 hours in one day, basically, is what you just told me. <laughs> Are you sure it's like you don't have enough hours in a day? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound like it. Good riddance. But that's amazing. You lecture as well. That's that's really cool. And yes. I, if I did pick up correctly, did you say your kids are gold and silver? Yeah, so it's Edia Gold and Edsania Silver. Yeah, oh, I was trying yeah. to do the medals, but then <laughs> I don't think I'm doing bronze because these two girls are such a handful and they're like really outspoken and bold. I think I'm raising two power women, so I think I'm, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what happens when they have names like that. That's amazing, though. All right, well, thank you. Thank you very much for indulging. That was really fun. Um, so to get us sort of straight into the meat of what we're hoping to talk about today, right? So especially coming out of COVID-19, we've heard a lot about, you know, figuring out how we are financing like Africa's recovery, how we are financing economic policies and things like that. Like, what are some of these options that are available? What kinds of policies do we need to be thinking about or considering? Well, usually when I think about Africa's growth, uh, I often like so I always say I'm a systems thinker, so I always like to try to put things like in a certain perspective. So mm -hmm. for Africa, I think what we should be considering to be at the core of our development goals is like making sure our development is inclusive and sustainable. Mm -hmm. So so it addresses inequalities, especially for women and girls, so, yeah. um, so supporting societies most vulnerable, and then generally lifting more people out of poverty whilst protecting our environment. So if that's the core of our development goals, then we can start thinking about how to achieve these goals. And I say invest in our most valuable resource. That's the people, us, the yeah. humans, is like the first thing we should consider. So health, education, social protection. And then with us, countries like Sierra Leone that have issues around food security, agriculture, and job creation. Because sometimes we look at agriculture as an 
economic kind of diversification kind of sector rather than a human capital development kind of sector. And then given her uh, work trajectory, her history over the years, missing out on a couple of industrial revolutions, I say at this point in time, we should make sure in we try to leverage science, technology, and innovation throughout in our yeah. investments across the um, human capital portfolio. And of course, on a foundation of prudent public financial management, because if we don't manage the financial resources, well, how would we have the money to spend on the goods and services that we need for our development? And in this public financial management space, of course, anti-corruption is key, good governance, protecting democratic values, and natural resource management. And of course, government doesn't have all the resources. So that efficient dialogue with the public um, with the private sector needs mm -hmm. to be in the big. So when we look at all these pathways and how they align with achieving our goals, then we can start talking about costing. <laughs> and course. then yeah, and then we look at costing. Of course, <laughs> resources are scarce. So in terms of some of the th policies we need to pursue to make sure we make the most of the scarce resources we have is being innovative across the board. So innovative reforms cutting across policy frameworks, legislative frameworks, strengthening our institutions, um, how we are innovative in how we build our human capacity and also investing in supportive infrastructure. Because um, when we do this supporting investing in these supportive infrastructure, that's when we start thinking about efficiency in the approaches we use to undertake all these reforms. And like I said before, I'm a systems thinker, so we need to approach all of these policies in terms of system approaches. So everything should have like a whole of government approach, not working in silos, but seeing how everything fits together as part of a system that works seamlessly to achieve the goals that we have. And that's where working seamlessly links into being sustainable. And with, with recent developments, I think for Africa, the way to go is like having a framework for developing Africa within the view of a green economy. So not only looking at development in the traditional sense, but looking mm -hmm. at it in how we must pursue our development, taking into consideration that our environment must be protected for future generations, because if the, the earth is not healthy, where would we continue to live? And what are we actually working towards if we if we don't manage our environment well? Mm. So um, in terms of like financing a green economy, especially when we're all working to recover from COVID, I think we need to look inwards and see how we can actually allocate resources towards things like um, um, clean energy, proper waste management and sanitation. Because sometimes when we talk about green economy, we kind of just limit it to climate change issues. Yeah. We don't talk yeah. about sanitation, um, manage, um, managing our water resources. Um, of course, reforestation and tree planting is important. But then also how we build the institutions and the skill sets to, to make this investment sustainable. And when we say investing in these things, some of it, especially for the African continent, there are novel ways of thinking and doing. So it's now some of the research work needs to happen. And we should make sure that we also develop in those policy frameworks to protect and share intellectual property. And one of the things that comes to mind quite recently is like 
the discussions around COVID vaccines and who has the know-how and the intellectual property rights for um, local manufacture on the continent. So if we're looking at um, policy reforms and how we can tap into global co um, collaboration to, to drive sustainable um, growth on the continent, these are some of the things that I think we should um, consider. So what are, I guess, where does the responsibility lie, right? in thinking about financing our recovery in these terms? Is this something that is and should be driven from maybe the executive? Is it something that she, I know you talk about an all of government approach, but how do we ensure that it actually is an all of government approach? Are there instances maybe you've seen this sort of system-wide thinking playing out really well and why did it work well? How could we get it to work like that? So first of all, ownership needs to come from the highest level. And of course, the highest level is the political will needs to be there. And then it's trickled down. And then we have the technical people supportive of the vision of their political leaders. So ownership has to be, come from the leadership of the country. So political will needs to it plays the biggest role. And once there's the political will, mostly outlined in manifestos that inform development plans, then we can have development plans that are inclusive and comprehensive enough to capture all these um different buckets in terms of human capital, the green economy, environmental protection, infrastructure. And one of the things that will also show um, that we need as a continent is that countries need to take the lead in allocating resources domestically from their national budgets first before mm. reaching out to external partners. So that commitment to show that you're really putting your money where your mouth is also mm -hmm. plays a key role in that. And once you start leading in that way and having like dedicated and um, development plans that articulate the journey you want to take then you can start engaging development partners and private sector partners and that's where the issues around reducing um risk around investments come in and these risks can only be reduced if we have the supportive and um, policy frameworks, having strong anti-corruption stance, protecting um, minority investors, and also creating that public-private dialogue where you link the players, not only with mainstream government players, but also we see how startups are doing now on the continent, linking them with startups, having linking um, university spin-off companies with um, donor partners, having um, community-led interventions. So it's how the country designs their own journey and making sure that the ownership is there and how you engage all the different players. It's what makes these um, conversations or what makes this intervention sustainable. And of course, we should constantly be investing in research and development because it's a rapidly evolving world. We don't want to be left behind. So we really need to think about that and how we also work with the play major players on how we develop the financial instruments, because we can't keep doing um, the same regular kind of financing, just loans and grants. Now we have hybrid financing and see how we can participate more in the international capital market. So like for Sierra Leone, we're working on getting our um, sovereign credit rating done. So at least you can be able to participate participate in the global financial markets and be able to um, attract different kind of um, funding to fund some of our development um, aspirations. Right, no, so there's a lot of work to be done. And I'm always, I mean, one of the things I've learned sort of in the job that I do as a 
here at the Brentes Foundation is a lot of the times we 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 have an idea of what to do. And sometimes in some places they know fully what to do, but it's always that do they actually do them because things get political and things just get lost in the mix. And I was just wondering from your experience, how would you say that, you know, we need to spearhead these conversations like a bit more? Is it just people bringing that up you know, in conversations all the time, like how do we actually get them to start happening across the continent? Because if you look at the population boom coming in a while, we really don't have the time or the space to not be doing things right at all. But it doesn't seem like a lot is being done, or at least not to the level that it needs to be done. So what are some of the practical realities around the how we need to start either approaching these conversations or doing things? So I think what we should be thinking about is is the how. And mm -hmm. the how is doing things differently and engaging with more with an action oriented um, outlook on things. So I usually say it's the delivery approach. And that delivery approach is what first of it, of course, the political will is there, but then it has to do a lot with prioritization, what your priorities are. And once you do that prioritization, then you engage the players that should fit into that squad or that team that needs to make sure that prioritized um, outcome objective happens. And then you get those players in a room or you connect these players. So you're all aligned on the vision and what the roles and responsibilities are, clear timelines and how the what the, inter, um, the linkages are from player to player. And when these things are happening, you need to keep track like, you should have a, some kind of performance management element. So you're not just speaking for the sake of speaking. When you set your goals, your activities, you should be clear on when they should be done, who should be responsible, who you need to link up with to make sure they're done, what the external dependencies are and how you can troubleshoot. And when the leadership is aligned on this work style or this approach, then you can see how problems, timely problem solving and issues escalation can happen. So you know that, I'm tracking my delivery every week, or I have a stumbling block around a procurement issue or having a meeting with a specific donor. I know that I'll need to escalate to my minister or I need to escalate to the presidency. So that's intentional delivery of what your target is needs to happen. And another thing is ownership, because for these interventions to be sustainable, there should be ownership at all levels. So it's not just central government, ownership at local government level, ownership at community level, and ownership as citizens of the world. So mm -hmm. that communication and having an open feedback loop of what's happening and also receiving feedback on how they're impacting the lives of citizens and what amendments or reforms government or development partners or implementing partners need to make. And then they take action on that. That work makes the system work. So political yeah. will, prioritization, all the right players doing what they're supposed to do, when they should do it, timely problem solving and having a clear feedback loop with all stakeholders is how we should engage this. And when we say engaging stakeholders, I don't mean stakeholders in terms of position or titles. Import, everyone is important. You're a citizen of the world, especially women and girls and youth, because sometimes we're left out of the conversation with it's what you bring to the table. And we're at the center of hands-on work in the informal sector, doing last mile delivery and youth are not like, 
there's so much information out there. Youth are leading in the ideation space. So there are people that have the money, but youth have the ideas that they bring to the table. So bringing all of this together is how we can get these conversations moving. And of course, diplomacy at the highest levels, strategic partnerships at the highest levels, communicating and sharing information at the highest levels. We cannot discount that because th those are the rooms where the decisions are being made. So at that level, so they should be aware of the need for them to be taking and making decisions that are action oriented. It's not just meeting at conferences, shaking hands, exchanging cards, and that's it. I completely agree with what you're saying. And one of the things that sort of came out, well, especially when you're talking about sort of the different ways of financing, like growth, was this idea of even like the, the private sector, right, also being involved. So usually, I guess it's, it's maybe slightly even going out of fashion, but one of the things we hear a lot is in terms of collaboration, or at least trying to get things to work right, right? This idea of PPPs, right? So public-private partnerships as being the way to go to actually try to get things. And I was just wondering, from your experience, have you seen PPPs to be a more effective way to get things done or to deliver service um, in your country? Um, and if you have seen that, are there particular, you know, things that must be present for PPPs to actually work? Like what, what differentiates PPPs that fall apart very easily as opposed to the ones that actually work? Yes, yeah, so PPPs are like actually attractive to governments, especially when we don't have, we're cash trapped. And <laughs> yes, um, Big infrastructure projects like roads, airports, power, water, they're really resource yeah. intensive. And even the ones in the social sectors, health, education, we, we're seeing PPPs in all those sectors, even agriculture. So like PPPs are really attractive um, forms of engagement for governments because it's like they're often non-debt creating on the central um, balance sheet of government. And the, with part, um, partnering with private sector, they come in with a lot of private sector competencies and efficiencies that governments can leverage on, and even in skills transfer, so that down the line, based on the design, whether it's build or create transfer or build finance, whatever the model is, there's room that some of these skills can be transferred to public sector staff, and youth can come in and learn skills, apprenticeship and skills. But no, no one PPP project is exactly the same like another. So every single PPP project it has its own specifics. And that's where I think the efficiency or the success of PPPs lie. It lies in the design and just having that initial awareness that no two PPPs are the same. You should consider the um, peculiarities for every single one in terms of the financial um, dynamics, the legal dynamics, even the political will to start with, looking at the different applicable laws and even the strength of the institutions that would be like the key partners to the private sector in making sure these projects um, actually are feasible and come to life. So in terms of PPPs that have worked are those that are actually well structured. And PPPs don't usually follow the traditional procurement um, pathway. So there are a lot of work that are usually going before in like establishing sound um, engineering designs, having like financial feasibility studies done, and then coming in now to meet the government to make sure there's the political will for it, such projects to go forward. Because I can tell you there are a lot of instances if the government is not clear or refuse to provide certain guarantees or certain incentives or 
even agreeing to share a certain percentage of the risk, those projects fail, those PPPs fail. So those where there's clear understanding at the start of what it entails in terms, in terms of affordability for the end users, especially because we have cases where you have like you need to build roads and you need to um, install toll gates on those roads and then the fees that the, the, the general public will need to pay. And if you're not aligned on those fees, they, they, they might have like political risk for the government and then the private sector will also not want to take up all the risks. So it's in the design and understanding the um, economic feasibility of those um, um, projects, also environmental and social considerations, because usually large infrastructure projects, you might need to like um, reclaim certain pieces of land. You need to like um, relocate people and pay in those compensations. Who should do it, whether it's government or whether it's the private sector players. So PPPs that have those um, kind of issues clearly defined at the start and everybody knows what amounts goes towards them are those they have high probabilities of being successful and also the implementation approach because they often come with like kind of ironclad um, um contracts and then mm. governments will not want to budge because they don't want to um increase their risk um, and then private sector also try to make sure they exploit the contract terms to increase their profits at most to the highest level. So if the implementation goes on as if like they're like adversaries, then you have issues because there's no projects for these big scale projects that unforeseen um, circumstances or challenges don't emerge. So if the implementation is government on one side and private sector on the other side as adversaries, then when it's time to deal with these issues, the struggle, and then you start running into over cost overruns, and that's how these projects go on off track. And so it's having, it's been clear on the design, having the right financial and legislative frameworks, ownership at all levels, even the communities understanding what their roles would be, how um, affordable or how the financing will work, especially for the ordinary citizen and then communication. So implementing the project as a partnership, as the, as the word says, public-private partnership and having built-in mechanisms to share perspectives on how well the project is progressing, especially around problems and concerns and having like risk mitigation clear on how they can work together to rebound from any failures that would affect delivery. So they do work but all of it is how it's designed, how it's been implemented and how it's been owned and how the relationship has been managed throughout implementation of the contracts. No, definitely. And I think that's helpful. And honestly, when you when you think about it, it it's it's literally what should be the case in any type of sort of, you know, interaction, any type of engagement, right? Being very clear on who's supposed to do what, who's bringing what, how do we approach this if we hit this benchmark? Just being very clear um, on basically what is required of each party. So that absolutely makes a lot of sense. So I'm definitely trying to respect of your time and I see we are hitting sort of the mark pretty soon. And I was just wondering, what's the best lesson that you've learned so far? in your line of work so far, um, especially um, for the public sector, if I can call it that? For me, it's always giving your best and mm -hmm. nothing, don't do the bare minimum, especially as a woman and as a young person. So throughout my career, it's been pretty straightforward, but of course there's this issue about entrenched patriarchy, 
um, microaggressions around ageism because most of the time when I enter rooms, I'm the only female and I'm the youngest. So it's something <laughs> I've learned to deal with. And one of the most, one of the ways that worked for me is giving 100% at every point in time and working as a team, being honest and um, integrity goes a long way and integrity is not limited to just finances. It's even how we account for your time at work. Because mm. sometimes mm. when people talk about integrity, they just think about, oh, I've not embezzled any funds. When you come to work, you spend time watching YouTube videos that are not connected to your work or hours on Facebook. I think that's 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 not what we're looking for. And yeah. yes, and also continuous learning and engaging and just building networks because um you don't know everything. Not work days are the same and you meet different um issues that arise on the job every single day so you might need to like engage people reach out to um, um experts in certain fields reach out to um partners or co colleagues in other um, ministries so it's just constantly giving my best and making sure that i do whatever it takes to get the job done whether it's like reaching out to colleagues in other mjs managing my bosses because it's something that's really important for us um when you're not like the the top decision maker in an institution. You need to learn upward management, how you um, how you share your concerns, your feedback, your proposals with your boss for them to see the technical the technical point of view, and then help them with informed decision making. So it's just being well-rounded and efficient is something that works for me. And also continuous learning in terms of leadership, because being a leader in different spaces, it's something that it comes naturally to some people, but you always need to learn because society is evolving. You meet different yeah. people, different scenarios. And one of the things I always do is like always try to apply and participate in leadership programs. So for like now, like this year, I'm, I'm an, uh, 2021 um, Amuji leader. Um, with the NNGOs in Surly um, um, Center for Women and Development. So like part of the program, we learn about leadership, how we work in working in the workplace, um, how you address um, when bad press. So things that um, with all the social media and just even how you engage and bring other women along in this journey, because there's we look at the workplace, we look at the business space, there are not many women leaders. Yes, we might be at the bottom of the pyramid or all middle level management, but we need more women in leadership spaces. So it's some of the things that we learn. And if we are to drive change across the world, we need more people on the journey because you can't do it on your own. You need to learn how to bring more people along in terms of partnerships, in terms of mentoring. And one of the things I learned recently in terms of sponsoring. So before I only knew about mentoring, I didn't know that was this actual additional layer of being a sponsor to someone and actually investing time and effort and opening doors. So I think we need to do more of that. So it's some of the things I've learned whilst being in this public service not too long, because over the years I've been mostly a consultant working with government and other private sector players, but it's last year that I made the decision to formally join the civil service to serve like in a more, <laughs> permanent capacity yeah. and it's been rewarding and interesting and I'm continuing to learn and and I don't intend to stop learning and giving my best.
No, that's amazing. I mean, I was going to ask about advice for sort of younger people looking to make some, you know, space in um, this line of work, but you've basically just given us all that. And it's also very encouraging to hear, right, about, as you just sort of said, your experience working as a civil servant, because a lot of the time, or at least when I'm having conversations with, you know, peers, is this idea that the way to go is the private sector and never civil service, because God forbid that ever happened to anybody. So it's always good to see people that are sort of in this space that are equally as effective, that are looking to change the status quo, which isn't exactly working, and also enjoying it along the way. Um, because I mean, whether we like it or not, you know, government government um, is, is, is a part of how countries function. And if we really want to see it different, we have to figure out, and not in the most cliche way, but how to create that change that it is we want to see. And so it's good to see people like you in that space. And I'm very excited to be able to even put that out there, not coming from somebody who is not, but thinks is great, but somebody who is mm -hmm. actually working in that space. So the last question I want to ask you is, uh, uh, just in case people who are listening do not know, uh, Dr. Jones is just not a little somebody. She even has a TED talk. You should find it. Um, but you talk about portfolio careers. And I was just wondering, is this something that you would say is still hugely relevant to young people today, considering sort of what seems sometimes to be like a disconnect between the number of people that are graduating and the jobs that are available? What advice do you have, uh, not even advice, maybe your thoughts or your experience around what it means to build a portfolio career? Should we be looking to build a portfolio career at all? Yes, 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 <laughs> definitely. We should be looking to build a portfolio career. Because, um, let me try to put this into context. So like the easiest, I think one of the most recognizable um, goals that everyone knows about is the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. And we're in 2021, yeah. 2030 is not too far. And no one country is on track. So definitely we need to find ways to accelerate this development. And one of the ways to do that is serving in more than one way. Because Africa usually, I don't know if in other countries, usually they always try to say, oh, you should find your true calling. What, but what if you have more than one calling? And so we have to work twice as hard. And what I call a portfolio career is for practically for me, is not the dictionary definition. Because the dictionary definition is having replacing one long-term salaried job with multiple um, short-term jobs. For me, it's like having one base um, career and then having smaller careers revolving around it. So these mm. can be like self-directed. It can be for money to the base one that would provide like the most security, of course, financially. And then you mm. have the smaller ones that might be just around supporting um, courses that you're passionate about or even exploring new competencies and even just sharing what you have, like mentoring, volunteering and partnerships and one of the things I want to encourage young people to do is that ideation is really important so sometimes you don't have the money but you have the brains you have the thoughts you have the ideas and you just need to have that grit to just continue engaging and pushing through those ideas and your your ideas to get funding and forming strategic partnership with those that are um, more capacitated in terms of having the resources and like one of the key, and um, for me, the key of my most passionate combination of careers, I would say, is everything you love accompanied by entrepreneurship. So the <laughs> entrepreneurs, yes, everything you're passionate about, or even if you're just doing it to just to survive, just because it's the most, um, is the job that paid the job that's available, you need to partner it with being an entrepreneur. 
and being an entrepreneur is like start with the ideation, getting the resources, solving these um, problems that society have, constantly engaging to find partners, just problem solving. And why should they serve? It's rewarding in terms of resources. You can bring other people along. That's how we create jobs. And that's how we just keep the inspiration and positive energy going. So maybe you, you don't have your dream job as yet, so you can still be doing something that's paying the bills. And then working on your idea on your ideas and finding these partnerships on stuff that you um stuff that you're passionate about, but also volunteering and engaging the younger generation so that they don't make the mistakes that we've had uh, we've made or that and they don't miss out on the opportunities that are um, available now of what might be emerging because we don't know what the next 10 years hold, but then but now we can start laying the foundation on getting them to know that oh school is important, education is important, but also technical vocational skills is important, creativity is important. So it's now that we really need to engage our young people on this. And you can do it as part of your portfolio career. So go in, yeah. say on a Saturday, I engage the kids in my community, or I'll just do, there are lots of WhatsApp groups now, I'll just do an inspirational voice note and just share. So the possibilities are endless. Yeah, no, I mean, you make such a solid point on that. And I think it's definitely an important narrative that we need to figure out how to get across, but also in a way that it delivers some type of a balance as well, right? Um, because there just seems to be so many stressors around Zoom uh, lately, but I think it's this idea of, I like your idea of whatever you're passionate about and adding entrepreneurship to it. That's one way to go about it, a pretty unique way to go about that um, actually. And it makes so much sense um, to be able to do that. But Yakuma, thank you, thank you so much for making time to speak with me today. I have thoroughly enjoyed this chat and I'm certain others will as well. Um, and yeah, hopefully we do stay in touch and maybe another time I get to have you on here again. But for now, really, thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much, Mary. And I hope the listeners enjoyed this and we're open to continuing these conversations on our social media and all our different platforms. Certainly. All right. Have a wonderful weekend, it seems. Thank you, and you too. Okay, folks, that was my chat with Yakuba, or shall I say, Dr. Yakuba Manti Jones, Director of Research and the Delivery Division at the Ministry of Finance in Sierra Leone. Before you go, may I ask that you share this chat with one or two people? Good conversations should go far. As always, do not forget to subscribe to our channel to be kept updated on future conversations. If you haven't already, also check out other episodes on the channel. It's really a goldmine here if I do say so myself. As always, I'm your host, Marina Well, and it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Thanks for tuning in, and until next week, stay safe.